Welcome to the Business of Art and Design, where we have straightforward conversations with artists and designers who have used their arts degrees to pursue a career in the visual arts. I'm your host, Jody McCoy, Director of Exhibitions at Missouri State University. Today, we're back recording with our Graduate Professional Practices class as they chat with Loring Tayoka about handling, packing, shipping, and installing artwork, along with his art practice. Lauren Tayoka is a studio artist who explores perception, truthfulness, and ambiguity through a variety of approaches and techniques. He asks foundational questions of looking and seeing and creates work that challenges the viewer's perception of an image. Loring earned his MFA from the University of North Texas in 2011 and his BA from the University of Toledo in 2008. His work has been featured in numerous venues such as the Western Exhibitions in Chicago, Illinois, River Gallery, formerly the CES Gallery of Los Angeles, Vox Populi of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the Dallas Art Fair, the Seattle Art Fair, the New American Paintings uh, periodical. His most recent solo exhibitions includes You're a Liar at Rebecca Randall Bryan Gallery in Conway, South Carolina, and Oh Well at Gallery Urbane in Dallas, Texas. Tayoka's next exhibi exhibition opens at the Sahara West Gallery in Las Vegas, Clark County Library in December. So Loring, thank you so much for joining us tonight. And please yeah. talk, talk to us about your work and sharing. Thank you, thank you, Sarah. Um, um, but what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna talk about uh, my, my work. Um, that's about half of the lecture. And then the other half is uh, studio practice and professional development sort of intermingled. Um, and y'all can ask me questions after and I'm, I will give you every bit of information I have, I believe um, very strongly in uh, access to information. So I will be as transparent with you. I will, um, I'm not going to lie to you about these things. I'm not going to lie to you about anything. So feel free to ask it. Um, if you are thinking it, someone else is thinking it too. So perfect. Look, it's me. It's my Memoji. Um, I'm Lauren Taoka. Thank you for joining me tonight. Thank you, Sarah, for having me. Um, it's been really great to reconnect with you over the years. Uh, it's been a very long time since grad school. Um, so I'm going to open with this quote. It's from my nephew. He's four. Um, and he said, I'm going to be an artist when I grow up and work for Uncle Loring Works, but my work will be made with triangles. And I really love this because I believe in accessibility of art. Um, and I use, um, I utilize geometry as sort of a frame of reference and as sort of this uh, ubiquitous language. And I always say if I show my work to a five-year-old, they, they can identify a circle, and this is proof that a five-year-old can identify a circle. Um, and maybe it's also a little bit of an art critic telling me that I need to put triangles in my work. So I'm going to start out with work that I um, made almost immediately after finishing graduate school. Uh, I got a job in New York City and was able to um, live and work there, and this work to me is sort of like the impetus or the genesis of what I'm working on now and the things that I think about. So I'm primarily concerned with uh, perception as it relates to uh, my queer Japanese American identity, sort of how I move through space, how people understand me, um, how we read images, how we read people, how people read themselves, uh, and sort of all of these things that branch out from that. So this work was utilizing, again, basic geometry. So this is a square. And I was basically questioning um, how we understand it, how we understand this image, how we understand this object. If I tell you that it's a square, do we, we believe that it's a square? Um, you know, if I unfurl this and I lay it on the ground, it's actually, you know, the, the shape is a square, but the way that it's displayed and the material that I'm using um, is distorted. So I'm questioning, is it necessarily a square if it's displayed in a different way? Same thing with this. Um, a circle, if I pull it out, um, what defines a circle? Um, what is circleness? How does our perception affect our understanding and how our understanding can shift when uh, we're presented with new information? I put these images in there also because I want this to serve as an example of getting good images of your work. Uh, these are horrible images and no matter what I do, I cannot fix them. I cannot go back. Um, 
So always get good documentation of your work. I'm not a big fan of this, uh, these images now because I can do a much better job of um, photographing my work like this. Uh, so that work sort of started the work that I'm working on now, uh, really engaging with geometry. So if we look at this painting, how a circle is defined and how we read that circle, um, you know, the circle isn't painted, so it's in the negative. Um, and working with plexiglass as a material, uh, the innate qualities when plexiglass, the transparency. And as I sort of worked with, the, with, with this imagery, I was looking at a lot of icons, symbols, um, digital logos, that sort of stuff. And looking at those things as carriers of identity or carriers of meaning. So I think about putting a sticker on a water bottle or putting a sticker on your car, a bumper sticker, something like that. Uh, and I started rendering these um, three-dimensional. So you have what's called the two and a half dimension or the 2.5 dimension that's really common in graphic design where it gives the illusion of depth and the illusion of space, but it's not exactly that. Um, we recognize it and there's sort of a, a dissonance between the, the two-dimensional surface and the three-dimensional rendering. I eventually introduced color into my work once I had sort of this visual language um, down and I utilized gradients um, primarily for uh, conceptual reasons. I think about uh, a gradient representing or sort of freezing a moment in time. Uh, they, they act as sort of like that frozen transition. So. As a, as again, as a queer person of color, moving through space, being in a constant state of flux, I felt like this was a, a direct parallel to this. So if we look at this image or we look at this image, we can say this is this end is yellow and this end is orange. But at what point does yellow become orange? At what point does orange become yellow? Can we define that necessarily? And if we really want to get into it, there's an infinite number of colors between these transitions. So utilizing gradients was a conceptual choice but it was also like, these are aesthetic choices that I make, um, but I let th the ideas inform what I'm doing. But also I love, I love a good gradient. I love a good fade. Um, I just, it, it makes my heart sing. Uh, so I started taking, you know, the transparency that's uh, innate in the, the plexiglass and working that into the imagery. So this is all uh, painted, it's all opaque, but I use sort of like the same sort of visual cues so it becomes sort of like the self-referential loop of transparency, opacity, uh, and then the painted image sitting on it. And I also really loved that these paintings, um, they almost floated in space. Uh, in an ideal world, I could make an object or a painting that just sat in the middle of a gallery. There's no gravity. Um, and this was sort of like the closest way I could get to it. Uh, it cast shadows, so it had sort of an object hood that I think maybe a traditional uh, linen painting or a, a panel doesn't have. I wasn't able to engage with the viewer in a different way. These pulled, um, they were, you know, the colors change depending on the lighting, colors change depending on context, uh, depending on your position. It also called into question the viewer themselves so you could see yourself in the, physically in the painting. And I was really interested in that materiality. So I ended up removing some of the plexiglass because. I wanted to see what it meant for us to look at this image. So when we're looking at plexiglass and we see the wall behind it, the plexiglass is mediating our vision. What would happen if I remove that and you're actually seeing the gallery through the piece? How does that change how it's function? How does it catch the light differently? How does it change the information? How do we now understand this imagery when it's engaged, uh, when the material is engaged with in a different way? This piece was, all of my work is rendered on a computer and I put in these false shadows and then I actually removed the shadows from the plexiglass and a happy accident is when, you know, we cast light on it, it gains those shadows again. So there's that, uh, that sort of movement back and forth between these being actual shadows, but then being implied shadows in the actual painting and sort of how we reconcile that imagery and how we sort of come to terms with this, semi-dimensional um, work. Ended up moving uh, the images off the surface and sort of, or off this sort of like implied edge and thinking about how we finish an image, how we understand it, how when something isn't necessarily complete, how we, um, how we identify what we're looking at. And this gave way to, or sort of was like the start of what I feel like I'm doing currently within the past year. Uh, these paintings are 
um, pattern repeats. So if you tile the paintings next to each other, they will make a complete pattern. But I wanted to realize them in almost a mirror of each other. But these are like false mirrors. They aren't exactly the same. Colors shift a little bit differently. Um, and they aren't uh, perfect. And then that leads us to question, you know, what's the original? What's the copy? Do these things matter? How does that affect our understanding of what we're looking at? So here's a pattern that I rendered, um, Illustrator, and then how it translates to the painted surface. And this was one of those times where I made a bunch of work, I got it all set up, and then a month before the show, I decided to do something different. Um, and we'll come back to that in a second. So I had a show in February, almost immediately following. Um, and it was, again, one of those moments where I was like, I need to change what I'm doing. I felt like I had exhausted uh, the plexiglass at, the junk, at this sort of junction in my life. And I wanted to push the work in a similar direction, a related direction, still talk about the same things, but do something different. So I taught myself how to build panels, um, something that I had never done before. I taught myself how to gesso. I taught myself how to make these things like super, super smooth and super, super nice. Um, and what I wanted to do is, you know, fully acknowledge the painting as a painting and not get rid of the surface and have that really inform um, what I was doing. So looking at depth of field, uh, foreground, middle ground, background, how I could mess around with those things and still communicate in the same way. Color also, again, started to play a really important role in what I was doing and thinking about um, how we view what we're looking at and what's deemed like a nice, easy thing to look at versus uh, what my partner calls the ugliest painting I've ever made. <laughs> Which I love. I love that term. I love that idea. I love that it can garner sort of like um, the lowest of the low. I love this painting. I think it's beautiful. Uh, I love what it does optically. You know, you have the really hard edge of the mint against the orange and it vibrates and it hurts my eyes. But then you have right next to it the exact opposite where the orange becomes the mint. Um, so thinking, really considering color theory and sort of my understanding of color and what I think about color. So um, to sum this up, is this a rectangle? Um, is it a rectangle if it's made from a rectangle? Uh, is it a rectangle if we understand how it could be a rectangle? And is it becoming or undoing those qualifiers? So these are the things that I think about when I'm making work. It sounds real heady and real like stony baloney. Um, but these are the things that I consider and they're also uh, really basic questions about making work, making and looking at images. Uh, in that show in October, I had a student ask if, or make the remark that what I'm talking about can be applied to any form of art. And I re also really loved that because, you know, it's, it's sort of like a, a funny thing to say, you know, I'm doing something that everyone does. I'm just talking about the act of looking, the act of perceiving and how we look at an image. So I, um, yeah, their professor told me that and then they sort of backpedaled and I was like, no, 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 I love this. I love that someone said that I'm super into it. Um, this was, the opening was in February and I was just looking at the timeline of COVID. It was like right around the time, it was like maybe a couple days before the WHO um, said it was gonna be like a global crisis. So immediately after this, uh, we were put into self-isolation. It was declared a pandemic. Um, and I knew that I had to keep working. Uh, and this is, you know, some, some studio practice stuff, things that I think about. Um, I didn't have access to the equipment that I needed to do to make my work. So I decided to revisit old ideas. Um, because I couldn't have machines do things for me, I had to do it myself. So I, well, how am I going to get these images on this paper? How am I going to teach myself how to use gouache? Um, I've never, I had never used gouache prior to March this year. Um, and I just sort of sat down and said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to figure it out um, and I'm going to make it work. So I printed off stuff on 11 by 17 paper. I trimmed it. I taped it all together. I then put it on my window. You can see my Power Ranger sticker uh, beneath the actual paper. And then I traced it all by hand. Um, and I went, took a deep dive into patterning. Um, something that I've always really been interested in, <clears throat> primarily with camouflage. I'm super, super into camouflage. Um, so I wanted to create my own camouflage um, while paying attention to the grid of a pattern, how patterns are made, pattern repeats, um, interrupting those patterns, using the patterns um, on top of each other, distorting the imagery, making these things sort of like saccharine, almost like too sweet to handle. Um, grotesque, 
my work has been described as violently queer, which I love. I love that term. You know, the colors are like in your face. It's unapologetic. Um, so my relationship with camel or camouflage is a fraught relationship. Uh, I grew up in rural New Hampshire uh, as like a weird queer Asian kid. Um, and a lot of my oppressors wore camo, but I also really love camouflage for what it does conceptually um, and functionally. You know, it helps us blend in, it helps us, um, it makes us stand out. The idea of, you know, vacillating between those uh, two sorts of poles is really important for me, um, especially as I move through, move through the university system, working for an institution and sort of how I create and maintain space for myself and for other marginalized people. So. I'm taking a deep dive into camouflage. Um, it's always been near and dear to my heart. I have all my phone cases have been camouflage. I have a pink camouflage blanket on my bed. Um, I'm super, super into it. Uh, this is a culmination of many of those previous processes. Uh, you know, this painting, I wanted to acknowledge painting hood. Um, it's completely aware that it's a painting and it's not pulling any stunts, but it still has like little tricks up its sleeve. The pattern isn't complete, the pattern isn't right, the pattern is offset, it has sort of like a reference to the edge of the painting, but it's not the edge of the painting. So sort of seeing how I can change these things. <clears throat> so my studio practice is all day, every day, no breaks, no vacations. Um, and this is like a very true statement. I am never not thinking about my work. I think about my work all of the time. So these were taken in Miami last year. I went to the fairs to like do work, to make connections, uh, network. But I was also looking at everything around me and absorbing this information. Uh, and this is, when I say I have no vacation, I mean that I never have a vacation from this. It's, it's a constant thing. I went to a historic home in New Hampshire where I'm from and I looked at the pattern in this home and I was like, I love this shit. Um, take pictures of it, you have a standard pattern on the left and you have a pattern that's applied to a wall and then part of a ceiling and how that distorts and how we understand that. Patterns on top of patterns or patterns folded in on themselves. Even my bed sheets. Um, and then some, you know, a repeated motif of Annie's cheddar bunnies on mac and cheese that I made. <clears throat> and thinking about how these sort of things sort of inform what we do. Camouflage on a jacket that doesn't actually work and then a photo of a bush, and then the same bush reflected in the mirror. So my studio practice is all day, every day. Everything I do is part of my studio practice. Um, my dogs, I consider part of my studio practice. They uh, help me stay grounded. They provide like a much needed emotional, mental, and physical break from my work. Um, and I know that if I don't do that, I won't, um, my work won't be as good. Uh, so I listen to myself, I listen to my body. Uh, here is me sleeping in the middle of uh, painting a show. Um, I take naps seriously. Everything I do feeds what I do. Playing video games, Fortnite, I love Fortnite. Um, and you know, these things also serve, well, they serve like a mental relief. I also am thinking about my work when I do this stuff. So while I'm playing this video game, I'm also thinking about how uh, space is rendered on a two-dimensional surface. Um, how we understand space as a whole, and then paying attention to colors and uh, the use of a, a color as a function um, for a vehicle of understanding, something along those lines, and then other creative output like baking. Um, speaking with Sarah last uh, Friday, I think we spoke, um, wanted to talk a little bit about my current job. I work as an advanced technology lab supervisor. So I'm basically a studio tech for two-dimensional two technologies. Um, I haven't always done this. I was very lucky to get this job a couple of years ago, <clears throat> but I've done everything. Postgraduate school, I worked at Target stocking shelves. Um, and then I worked in coffee for six years. And all of these things <clears throat> provided their own sort of uh, pros and cons. So. Right now I get to use this awesome piece of equipment that cuts, draws, creases, scores for me so I can trace everything onto paper and then paint it and paint by number. Um, but what comes along with a job like working at a university is the amount of time that I have is very limited now. I was talking with Sarah right before this started. I woke up at 5.45 to paint this morning. 
um, because I knew that I wouldn't have time during the day. Uh, working in a coffee shop really afforded me the ability to have a lot of time. Um, so I made a lot of big strides in my studio, but I didn't have any money. Um, and I didn't have any equipment. So I really had to make these things work for me. And I say this as a way of saying like, you have to balance what you need and how you're going about doing it. Um, so there are major perks. I get to use this great equipment, but I have less time. And I also take work home with me now that I'm in a university setting. Um, use the plotter to cut the stencil. Beautiful transfer. Just outfitted a computer with a UV ink so we can print blacklight stuff. Um, and I'm showing these images because it is my responsibility, it is my job to assist students, staff, and faculty with their artistic research. Um, and I love doing it. I, it brings me great joy to do this stuff. But on top of that, I get to learn this great equipment and I get to utilize it in my own practice. So it's a uh, it's serving two purposes when I pick up this equipment and I figure it out. It's helping me learn it better so I can teach the students. And then it's also helping me figure out how I can fit this into my work. So that machine that I used um, when I didn't have, uh, or that plotter, the vinyl cutter, when I wasn't able to do that, I had to problem solve my way out of it. You know, COVID prevented me from using that equipment, so I revisited those ideas. Um, and my general thinking about this stuff is that I'm used to failing. I fail all the time. I'm used to things not working out. So why not try something new? Uh, two things that I say to myself and I say to anyone who asks if they should try something, I say, why not? And they'll say, what's the worst that happens? Um, you know, I knew going into this, if I tried gouache, if I tried tracing this stuff and it didn't work out, um, that I would still be at the same position I was before. Um, and I know myself well enough that I won't just ditch this approach. I will find a way to make these things work for me. So this is sort of like studio practice, uh, professional practices, professional development, all mixed into one. Um, my work is all made on a computer. Um, there are anywhere between 20 to 100 sketches per painting that I make. And about 30% of the sketches that I make get made. So. <clears throat> There are just multitude of things that I work on. Here is a screenshot of some of my files from 2019. Um, and you can see those pattern pieces really early on. Here is a screenshot from 2020. I'm up to 108 sketches. This is my highest number of uh, prelim sketches I've ever made. Uh, but I was looking at this, this particular screenshot, um, and I'll go more in depth so you can see it, but 77 through 85 are all the same idea, just redrawn. And I actually went back and looked through my files. So this is probably the seventh or eighth version of this file, um, and it wasn't working, so I gave it a few months to rest. This is version 16, 15 or 16. At the, again, I wasn't ready. Um, it wasn't doing what I wanted it to do. This is version 18 that I resolved last week and turned into a painting. Um, but I knew there was something in that piece. I knew there was something there that I wanted to keep working out. So I just uh, was persistent. But again, I listened to myself. I listened to my brain and my body saying, put this away, try something new. And then we end up with this piece um, that I'm very, very pleased with. Uh, and it would have been trash if I had made this original one. Give yourself time. On top of that, I keep track of all of my paint that I mix. <laughs> I am pretty terrible at mixing paint, and this was um, necessitated by the fact that I had a client scratch a painting and asked if I would fix it. Um, it was the one and only time that I will ever do that because it's just not, that's not, that's not my jam. Um, but I had a hard time matching the paint, so I started weighing my paint and keeping track of it. And even with this process, I know that I can do it better. I know that I can have a better system. So I now uh, label all of my paint swatches with whatever file I'm painting from. So that way I can go back and reference those things. Record keeping for an artist. <laughs> These are, and you can look if you see the screenshot. Um, last edit was on July 7th, 2019. So I haven't kept up with this, but and that's a little daunting. It makes me feel like I'm going to throw up because I have so much work made within the last year and a half. Um, but what this does, this is all of my work. It has my titles. It has the file names on my computer. It has the media, the year, the provenance, so where it's been displayed, dimensions, and price. 
Um, it also is color coded, so I can tell if it's at a show, if it's in my house, if I've thrown it away, if I've sold it, if I've given it away, um, all of these sorts of things so I can keep track of what I have. Um, and I think that's super, super important for you to do. And corresponding to that are all of my images. I take a bunch of images, I pick the one that I wanna work with, I save that as a raw file or an F, um, and then I edit it, I edit the color, so it's like true white, I save that as a TIFF, and then I have three versions that I save after that. I have a version for Instagram, social media is super important, I've got a ton of shows off of Instagram. Um, I have a, a photo for entering shows, that's a specific DPI, and then I have a photo for my website. And these are all like this for every single image I take. I'm very, 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 um, what's the word? I'm very, very strict about this. I also have an inventory of my paint. So I know what I need to order and I know when I need to order it. Keep track of all receipts. Um, for tax purposes, I can't do my taxes. I give them to my sister. She does them for me and I give her a painting every year. Um, and this is, you know, sort of making, making do with what you have. If you aren't able to do it yourself, have someone else do it for you, figure out a way to make it work. Um, if you're not going to spend the time to do it right now, when are you going to spend the time to do it right? Um, so I do that right. So I render all of my shows in SketchUp and I display all of my work in SketchUp. And this is a big overlap with a professional practice. Um, it allows me to see how the work is sitting there. It allows the gallery to see how the work is sitting there and sort of see that I'm taking these things seriously and I'm not just like popping off work and sending them out. Um, I want the work to look good together. I also listen to what people say. They said my hardware was scratching, so I powder coated my hardware. Um, and these little things make a huge difference. Uh, this is all my packing. We'll get into my packing right now. Uh, these are all corner protectors for my paintings. Everything is uniform, everything is the same. They are all laser cut. Um, all of my work is packed exactly the same. There is nothing different. Everything is labeled. There are little pull tabs. Um, so all these paintings that I made, they're all wrapped in glassine. They're all taped the exact same way. They're all folded the exact same way. I put on the corner protectors and then I wrap them in bubble wrap with the bubble spacing out so you don't ruin the paint. Um, and then I wrap each one of these in like a mylar little bag that are then packed into my crates. And these are soft crates or cardboard. I don't have the capabilities to make like a wood crate right now. So I use cardboard. Um, but packing, and we can get into more specifics if people have specific questions. Um, but packing, I always double box. That's something that I've learned. Um, I picked up along the way. So I have a box on the inside and I have a box on the outside. The box on the inside floats with packing material on the outside. I take this part of my practice more seriously than I think I take anything else. Um, as you can see, my gallery has posted images of these packages because they love them. Um, and my feeling is I want the work to arrive safely. Uh, I don't want it to get damaged. And then if if I provide these instructions, I provide these super easy things, um, everything's uniform the gallery is gonna like me um, and they're gonna wanna work with me. I have every show, I would say 75% of the shows that I've been in, I have received a message about how good my packing is. Um, and I've installed shows and I've had really shitty packaging from well-known artists and I will never work with them again. Um, Packing peanuts for me are a straight up no, 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 no. Don't use broken pieces of styrofoam for packing material. No, 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 no. Um, I use pink insulation foam. And all of these come with packing um, instructions, hanging instructions that I've drawn in Illustrator. So here's a, a rendering of a plexiglass painting and how to display it. How to, you know, if you want to hang it at 60 inches, here's how high you need to measure up from the top of the bottom. It has the measurements for left and right and top to bottom for those uh, standoffs. Assembly instructions for a sculpture that I ship flat. Um, and these are for every piece of painting that I have or every piece of work that I have. Every box that I send has um, an inventory. It has packing instructions. It has hanging instructions. I um, give these to people because of course I want it to be easy, but if someone doesn't know how to do something, um, 
than they do. Uh, it's not that I think that um, they're dummies or anything like that, but it, you know, it gives them the ability to learn how to do these things. Everything's nice and uniform. I have my, one of my little assistants for helping me right there. Um, and then sort of my crowning achievement in packing work is how I shipped these plexiglass paintings. These are uh, boxes that float the painting um, off of the surface of the cardboard. So it's only touched on, I think a half inch all the way around. Um, so it allows the, the paint to not be touched by anything. Um, I'll put little supports on the top and bottom. So if I have pieces, if you look, you can see these are laser cut um, that support the actual laser cut pieces of plexiglass. Um, and then this closes and it notches together and it ensures the work that it's not gonna get damaged. Um, it also makes it easier for when people are picking it up so they're not touching the surface, they can touch the edges. I you know, put those little tabs there specifically so you can grab it and pull it out. And these fit to a T, they click in. Um, I am really proud of these boxes. Okay, so these are boxes production mode for shipping work. Um, and you can see some work behind it, but I make all of the work and then I make all of the boxes to fit the work and sort of send that stuff out. And what I was saying was, um, I've never had like a proper studio. I've worked uh, on the roof of an apartment. I've worked in a kitchen. I worked in a spare bedroom. All of my spaces are dual purpose spaces, multi-purpose spaces. So here's my garage in preparation for a show. This is what it looks like right now. I think they took this photo on Sunday. Um, so you can see where I paint. Um, you can see some paintings that I'm going to either throw away or recycle on the left. I have a chop saw. I have ventilation. I also photograph my work here. Um, so if you, you might be able to see like a, a barely white skim coat wall on the, on the far wall. Um, and this again is just making use of the space that I have and making it work for me because I'm not gonna pay a lot of money. Sorry, my dogs are barking. I'm not gonna pay a lot of money um, to have this done for me. When I lend my uh, tripod to someone else, I have to make a makeshift tripod. So here's that. I stack some milk crates, a five gallon bucket, and my container for holding my gouache. <laughs> and you can hear my loud dog screaming in the background. Um, here's just more studio shots. Uh, I save all of my stuff, all of my stencils I save as sort of like an inventory of what I have. Um, my other advice is be safe about working in your studio. I airbrush a lot and I don't want to get sick, so I outfit myself to a T. I look like a hazmat worker. Um, middle of Arkansas summer, I'm in my garage in a Tyvek suit in a full face respirator doing this, sweating my ass off. Um, this is my studio right now. Uh, it is also serves as my spare bedroom for when we have people visit. You can see my packing materials, you can see everything that I'm working on, um, and it's just taking the space that I have and making it work for me. I have things that I love hanging up, um, work from other artists, funny things, uh, things that remind me of why I'm doing what I'm doing and sort of get me into the right headspace of making work. Here's some work that I made for my show coming up. I'm gonna show a couple more images, um, but I wanted to show this because <clears throat> I found um, you know, I've been working on this sort of like pattern impasto for a minute, trying to figure it out for maybe like a year and a half, getting it to work correctly. And I saw this artist in February who does it so much better than I do. Like this is just for me, just mind blowing. Um, and it was simultaneously like really, really exciting and also really heartbreaking because you find someone who does something that you've wanted to do and they do it way better than you do it. Um, and I grappled with this for a really long time. I'm a huge fan of his work um, and it's great. But also um, we don't make work in a vacuum, so screw it, I'm gonna do it too. So I did, um, you know, Alex Dodge, amazing artist, I love it. He didn't invent impasto, so I'm gonna go ahead and do it myself. Um, and then I'm gonna end on an image that is from a gallerist, a friend of mine who understands me really well and who sent this image or sent this little note um, to me to remind me of like the things that I love and sort of um, to not take myself too seriously. 
So she sent this image, she sent this little torn up piece of paper with one of my, one of my paintings and she said, this stuff is stupid. And I really love that because, you know, it reminds me to like have fun and like be serious about what I'm doing, but also like, it's okay. Like sometimes, sometimes I'm going to see someone do something better than me and it's okay. Um, so I have this saved, I keep this little note with me uh, as like a, a gentle reminder about, about making work and sort of moving through the world. That was fantastic. Thank you so Thank much, you. Loring. Yes, my class, please uh, weigh in with questions that you might have. Let's hear those packing questions. I know someone's got to have one. I know they've got some good ones because they sent them to me. Yeah. I love it. I love this stuff. All right. I'm going to start asking your questions yeah, for you. <laughs> okay. Do you have an area range that you will just drive your work to shows or do you always ship? I always ship my work um, <clears throat> unless I'm going to install the show myself or I'm going to see oversee installation. I will uh, always ship my work. Uh, I live in Fayetteville, Arkansas. You know, <laughs> the, my, my gallery is in Dallas and it's a six hour drive. Um, so I've, I've always shipped the work there. I have never really been able to take off like a week of work to go out and install the, install the show. So I always, always ship my work. We talked about insuring work and you talked about it earlier. So I want to talk about that too, because I don't use art handlers. I've never used art handlers. I've always shipped my work through, haven't always, I ship my work through FedEx. Now I have an account with them. I like them. We'll insure my work for maybe a hundred dollars. If it's like one or two paintings, if I'm shipping a whole, sh whole show, I'll insure the work um, for maybe a thousand dollars, maybe a box of like three or four paintings for a thousand dollars. And my sort of feeling is that if it's insured for $1,000, they don't want to lose money, so they won't use it. Um, you know, I've never had my work lost with FedEx. I know people that hate them, but I really like working with them. I've also found that if you specify ground shipping, that's a little bit safer than other options. Do you have a preference? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I always do ground. I always do slowest. Um, I'm also super, super prepared for this stuff. I always ship my work way too early. You know, like we said, I was, um, I was in this meeting at five. So, so I ship my, ship my work like I'm getting ready for a 5.30 meeting where I'm gonna be, arrive at five. Um, and I think sort of like a good rule when shipping work is I make sure that I can throw the box and it's not gonna get damaged or that I can kick the box and it's not gonna get damaged. I can stand on my boxes and they're not gonna hurt my paintings. Um, and that's sort of like a standard for me. You do a lot of 2D work. What's your experience with like shipping 3D work? Mm -hmm. Any like definite tips that you have? Yeah, so my, so I have shipped sculptures. I've, um, yeah. I, used to, I used to be a metalsmith. I used to be a jeweler. Um, so I'm used to shipping these things, hi Gina. Um, so my, that sort of rule, rule that I said where you double box it, that's, that came from shipping three-dimensional work. Um, okay. And what I did is, you know, I would use foam. If I was using packing peanuts before I knew not to use packing peanuts, I would put them in plastic bags and tie them so they wouldn't go anywhere. And basically I would make the object, so I was making these raised voles, I would make them um, float with packing, uh, packing material and then I'd box that. And then I'd make that box float with packing material all the way around it. Um, and I think a good rule for that that I heard was like two to three inches between the inner and outer box. Um, so you can use uh, insulation foam. I've used uh, butcher paper, that sort of stuff, and like crumple it up just so it like floats in space. Um, that's sort of the rule. When it comes to larger scale work, <clears throat> I'm not the expert on larger scale sculpture. Um, everything that I've seen, people get like crated. Uh, and I can't afford to do that, so I'm not going to make a large sculpture that needs to be created. Yeah, that was another question about mm -hmm. uh, what are the challenges of shipping or sending work that are like on alternative canvases, like your work on plexiglass, which you covered. But yeah, then so, the follow—oh, oh, sorry—the follow-up question was: Are those questions you ask yourself when you're creating? So I make all my boxes to suit the needs of the the work that I'm making. So. Um, 
I just figure out quote unquote creative solutions. You know, I have an MFA, I have an art degree. So I figure out ways to make those things work. And no, I don't think about how I'm going to shift the work when I'm making it. Um, I let, and this is sort of like a personal thing is I let my ideas drive the work and I make the work um, in the way that it's going to most clearly communicate my ideas. Uh, so if that involves making a gouache painting, I will learn how to do gouache. If that involves learning how to do uh, a bronze pour, I will then do bronze casting. Um, so I never, ever, ever let the idea of shipping um, mediate what I'm going to do. Uh, to me, that feels like a, a fatal blow to my artistic integrity. <laughs> um, you know, I'm making work about my experiences and the way that I move through the world, and it would be a lie if I made something um, that didn't do that specifically because I felt like a box, a uh, specific kind of box would work better. Never, ever, ever. I won't, I won't do it. I won't sell my soul for that. And other people will, and that's fine. It's whatever suits your needs, but personally, that's a big no-no. Someone did ask about how many galleries or venues show your work and how many is too many to keep up with? Um, so we actually talked about this, Sarah, uh, and it's something that I say is you say yes until you can say no. Um, and that's sort of like a functional thing, but also like a, a career thing. Um, I think too much is when it feels like too much for you, um, when you're not able to fulfill the, the duties that you need to be doing, you're not able to uphold your artistic integrity, you're not able to make the work that you want to make for the galleries and sort of phoning it in. That's when it becomes too much for me. Um, but also I am like, again, like this is, this is my life, making artwork is my life. So <clears throat> I got that email two weeks ago for a show in December and I said, yes, you know, and that basically means that my next eight weeks are just, um, it's complete shit to like be put lightly. It's like, it is me just in the studio, nonstop, no breaks, every day making something um but it's also because like i love doing this this is what i'm passionate about this is what i love to do um did that answer the question accurately <laughs> i think so but also i would okay. add to that you know because i admire your work ethic so much um if you didn't work the way that you do and think about art the way that you do when the gallery or an opportunity calls you and say can you be ready in two months you'd you'd say no mm -hmm. it's only because you're you're such, so dedicated to your practice and your art making that you're even able to consider it and, and say yes and pull something like that off. So yeah. that's another, I think, a really great lesson that you've prompted is you can't just paint first or, or make for a specific exhibition. You have to be an artist and the things will come to you if you put mm -hmm. the work in your studio. Yeah, and I sort of feel like, um, I just lost my train of thought. Um, there is, here we go, I got it, I got it back. I don't think that there's any specific way to be a, an artist or any specific way to do it quote unquote right. Um, but you have to define what you want and how bad you want it. Uh, that's something that I've heard a lot this year. How bad do you want it? And I want it so fucking bad. Like, <laughs> I want to do this so bad. I'm gonna, I'm gonna like hurt my body for the next two months. I'm gonna lose sleep because I want to, I want to make a show. Like I feel so fortunate and so privileged that I get to make a show that's going to be in a former museum. Like this place is bananas. I would have never, you know, I've dreamed about showing in a space like this and now I get to, so I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to make it work. You sent me beautiful images of the space and it, congratulations. That's a super big deal. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's surreal. I'm not there yet. I haven't realized it yet. Loring, um, in researching you, I noticed that you're on Artsy and Artspace and First Dibs. Um, what are your thoughts on those types of venues to share your work? You know, I, um, those were all put on by the galleries that I've had shows at. Uh, and to me, to be quite honest, it was like a, I felt like it was like a little badge of honor that I, I made it onto Artsy, you know? I remember when I got it with this work, I was like, oh shit, this is awesome. Um, <laughs> but it's also, you know, it's up to the gallery what, how they want to pursue selling work. 
Um, and I am fine with it, how they want to do it. You know, it's their choice. You know, that's why I say like I send them renderings of my work, um, sort of suggestions of how to display it. If they want to do something different, that's fine. If I have an ethical op, like if I feel strongly about a way that a gallery is selling work, then I wouldn't sell with them. Um, I wouldn't, I won't compromise, you know, my morals and ethics based on these things. So I am perfectly fine with artsy and first dibs. That's, that's great. I've purchased art off there too. It's, it's totally fine with me. Um, I think it's a great venue and I think it's really good. I use it for research. So if there's an artist I like, I'll go to their page and then I'll look at related artists and go to their page and look at related artists and go to their page and do that over and over and over and over and over again. Um, <clears throat> so I think it's like a good, it's a good tool. I have no, um, no opposition to it. How do you feel about that, Sarah? I don't have much experience with it, to tell you the truth. Um, I know that, I mean, I have no problem with it. I don't believe I'm on any of those at the moment, but it's not been a conscious decision not to. I just haven't investigated that avenue because honestly, I've not had time. <laughs> um, and that's one other reason, like we have talked in the past, and if you wouldn't mind addressing it as well, uh, a, a presence on social media. Like I have... Um, I have feelings about that that I've expressed in previous classes, and it could be that I'm a Luddite and I just refuse to get involved in that way, which is prob probably the case. But I feel like for me, my time is so precious at the moment that I can't engage in keeping a social media presence. So mm -hmm. I put that time towards making, thinking about work, being in my studio. So that's my personal um, opinion and also I feel like I don't know about you but I feel like um, I was a little bit before all the Instagram Facebook social media kind of hit mm -hmm. so I didn't have to like do all of my really hard work in that era you know like mm -hmm. I was um, in Dallas you know for grad school stuff and work in that scene you know and I was I was physically all the things so I think maybe that Instagram is kind of taking some of that place currently, but I, I was in a time where you had to go, you had to interact in person, you had to do it differently. So, yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I think, <clears throat> I think what's important in what you're saying um, is that it's, if it's right or not for you and if it's where you want to dedicate your time. Um, I have found it extremely useful living in uh, Fayetteville, Arkansas, when people say uh, you have to go to openings, in New York City, if you want to get shown at the gallery, you have to make yourself a visible face. I can't, um, I can't do that right now. I can't go to New York City and I can't do those things. So I think that Instagram definitely has its place. Um, and I definitely use it to network. I definitely use it to contact galleries. I definitely use it to talk to people. I use it to put my work out there. Um, and I like it for those reasons. Um, and I make digital stuff specific make content for Instagram because it has been super, super useful. Um, you know, I get to show, I got to show at Western exhibitions, which is like a dream gallery for me to show at, um, because of Instagram. Uh, so I, uh, I think it's a good tool, um, depending on how you want to use it. I think in the way that I'm using it, I think it's a good tool, but also, you know, you doom scroll right now. I'm doom scrolling, looking at like trash on Instagram. <laughs> it does nothing for me. Um, so yeah, I think Sarah's right. Um, yeah, I agree with all of it. Totally. So as we start our careers, um, is considering the type of gallery, um, super important or is more just getting our work out there, you know, cause there's, there's lots of different types and, um, I don't know, I, I kind of, I've just been thinking about that. Like, yeah. I think it's important for me to get my work out there, but then um, I think I think about other artists and how that might be like, is it is it required for like a strategy in your career, I guess? I think you know, um, when I said earlier, like say yes until you can say no, um, that was really what I was talking about um, along with other things, but I said yes to everything that I could until I was able to say no. Um, and this sounds, this might sound shitty, um, but being selective with these things after a certain point in time, um, do I want to, uh, how do I want my work to perceive? How do I want my work to be contextualized? Um, 
So I think it's fine for you. I say do as much as you can now, do as much as you can when you feel like it. Show wherever you can, get your work out there as much as you can, and then you can be a little bit more discerning as you move on. But also, I don't think, you know, um, again, I don't think there's a right or wrong way to do it. I don't think there's a right or wrong way um, to approach working with galleries. And you never know, like, all of this stuff is a crapshoot, to be honest. Working with a gallery is a crapshoot. Hoping a gallery will make you uh, Jeff Koons is a crapshoot. Um, so I just say, like, do what feels right. If it doesn't feel right, don't do it. Um, if you want to test it out, test it out uh, and see how it works for you. If it doesn't work for you, then okay, and now you know. Um, you gave it a shot and you sort of saw where it went. And I think that's, I think that's more important than, you know, like, is this gallery a big name? Um, I think having a good working relationship with these people is super important. I love my gallery. I love working with them. Um, they are awesome people. That is excellent advice. One caveat you might consider is a lot of galleries, uh, and we will cover this later in the semesters, you, it's a great idea to sign a contract so you know exactly what, how things will be handled. You must sign a contract, we'll cover that. But in the contract, sometimes you'll see galleries specify you can't show in a specific geographical radius or in some kind of competing way with other spaces. So yes, absolutely say yes, but you also have to know what you're saying yes to in terms of those things. Because if you're new to it, that might not be, like you don't know, and that's very unprofessional if you break a contract because you just didn't know to look for it or know it was a thing. Yep. Read that contract. If you don't know how to read legalese, have someone who does. Give them a painting, give them a sculpture, and have them show you how to, what it means. Um, don't go into these things blindly. Uh, you, have, you have Sarah Williams as a, as a professor. She can help you do these things. Don't be me and cut your teeth by yourself and sort of like do the rights and wrongs of this stuff. This has been such a good lecture. Lauren, thank you so much for your time. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. You can find Loring on Instagram at Loring Tayoka. That's L-O-R-I-N-G-T-A-O-K-A -A, in the Department of Art and Design at MSU Art Design. The Business of Art and Design is recorded at Missouri State University. Many thanks to Loring Associate Professor Sarah Williams and the Fall 2020 Graduate Professional Practices class. Special shout out to our editor, Adam Chilcote and Shelby Lewis for designing our cover art. Thanks for listening.